All right. Um, so if, if you're brand new around here, um, I'm Jason. Um, I am one of the pastors here on staff. Our lead pastor, Tim, um, has uh, given me the opportunity this week, and we've given him the chance to, to not be here. And so um, when you see him next, poke him or tickle him or something and say that that didn't come from me. That was your idea. Um, yeah, that would be inappropriate. Don't tickle the lead pastor. That would be really weird. <laughs> uh, you should do it. You really should. Oh, no. Hey, uh, so what I want to do tonight um, is, a, is different. I always do something different. Um, I get the privilege of being the different guy. And so um, what I want to do is I kind of want to have more of a, a heart-to-heart conversation. And what I mean by that is there are times um, when, as a pastor, I just... I just wish you knew some things, right? I wish that I could communicate some, some things that aren't, we're not going through a verse-by-verse verse study of Luke or we're not, we're not studying a topic for a series. This is just a, a one-time conversation and I just wanna try to tell you some things that, that have helped me, okay? Um, as we get into this conversation, I wanna go deeper in our faith tonight, not broader, does that make sense? I'm, I'm not planning to communicate um, new scriptures that you've never heard. I'm not going to pull some Bible verse out that you've never heard of. We're going to probably cover some material and some ground that you have studied before, especially if you've been around church for a while. We're not looking for breadth. We're looking for depth tonight. And that kind of that reminds me, um, I had, I had this, this friend. In fact, he was, he was a youth kid. A friend would probably not be the right way to put it. But I had this, um, this kid in my youth group. I took fishing once. We went up on the Mesa, and we went early. I mean, early. The, kind, the real fishing trip, when you get up there before it's even sunlight, right? And so we drive up to the backside of the Mesa, and we go lake after lake after lake. And we're, we're in a boat at first, and we're not really having any luck. And then pretty soon we're shore fishing. And eventually my, my family met me up there, and we, just, we spent the day with this young man. But as the day went on, um, I noticed something weird about him. Because I don't fish the way that he fished, right? I really like to either just stick the rod out behind the boat and drive around until there's a fish. That's, that's fishing, right? Or um, at best, I mean, I'll stand on the, on the shore and I will lure fish, right? But I've never used a fly rod before and I'm not good at it the one time I tried, right? I got it in a tree and he wanted to fly fish. And what I noticed was he would start getting deeper and deeper into the water, he would, uh, like, I'd be on the shore. I'm fine on the shore. And suddenly he's got his shoes off and he's just standing right on the edge, right? And then um, after a while, another lake goes, you know, we're, we're at another lake and pretty soon he's got his pants rolled up and he's out there kind of calf deep. And by the end of the day, the man had, or the, the kid, he had his pants were just soaked, like up to his pockets. And, and I was like, man, what are you doing? What? There's fish where I'm fishing. And he said, yeah, but I want the ones that are out there in the deep. And I can't get there if I stand where you stand. And I said, man, aren't you cold? And it was. I mean, let's not pretend. If you're up at 10,000 feet, I don't care what time of year it is, that water was cold. And I said, isn't that cold? And he goes, yeah, but it's worth it. It's worth it to be deeper. And that's kind of the plan today, okay? We're going to try to go a little deeper and not broader. So um, before, before we get into the scripture that I want to get to today, I kind of want to frame the whole conversation and so what I'm going to do, um, we're going to start in a scripture that we're not going to finish in. We're going to start in Genesis 2, and we're just going to jump right into it. And uh, in, in 2, 8, it goes like this. Now the Lord God had planted a garden 
in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then down in verse 15, it says, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And so to start our conversation, to frame our talk today, I want to use a tree. I'll put it there so everybody can see. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, okay? Now, what happened at this tree? You guys know what happened, right? Right, like um, God said, don't, and they did. People, <laughs> right? We can say people because of that moment, right? Because Eve and then Adam were deceived into thinking that obeying God wasn't where the source of enjoyment and pleasure was. If I just take for myself, I'll enjoy life better. And from that moment on, if you're, if you're familiar, maybe you're not with, uh, with, with the church lingo and all the things that we talk about, that was the moment that the good things that God had created, all of, all of the garden, all of creation was perfect and good. That was the moment that we broke it, right? In our representative, Adam, the goodness of God displayed on earth broke. And from that moment on, we've dealt with this thing that we call a curse, the curse. Sin entered the world at this tree. And with it came some problems, right? Death, that was the obvious one, death. And, and see, Adam and Eve didn't die in that moment, but they were never meant to die in the first place. And because of that moment, they died. But they also died relationally as they suddenly had fear and shame, and they could no longer commune with God in a physical sense in the garden. That's that tree. Let's keep going, because our talk today is called Between Two Trees. Revelation chapter 22. Now, this is literally the beginning of the Bible. I'm taking you to the other end. So if anybody asks you what you talked about today, you say the whole Bible. Okay. <laughs> Revelation 22. And this is after John the Apostle John, has been shown um, a new creation. The end of this creation has, has happened in his vision, and he's shown a new creation. And then this verse in chapter 1 of Revelation 22 says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city, and on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And then catch this, verse 3. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. So we've got another tree. The Bible starts with a tree, and it ends with a tree. Now, that curse thing that we just talked about, the, the brokenness. And remember, it's not broken because God did us something wrong, right? He, he created a good creation and we broke it. There will be a day when he puts it back together, right? The brokenness, 
right? There will be a day when it's right. And, and all of the elements of the curse, the death and the sin and the pain and the tragedy, all of those things will be righted one day. And that is how the story ends, which is a huge blessing for those of us that are between the two trees, right? But there's a problem. We're still between the trees, right? We know what's out there and we know what started this, but I'm living my life here between these two trees. And so here's a problem that I want to tackle. And it's, a, and it's a problem I wish I had better answers for. Where is God when bad things happen to good people? Where is God? What's he doing? Why isn't he stopping evil in this world? It's a hard question to ask, isn't it? See, I was thinking in, in my life, I just sort of thought back, um, trust me, not an exhaustive list, but just in my life, uh, mostly from high school on, the Columbine shooting happened. 9-11 happened. Katrina, the hurricane, destroyed part of our Gulf, right? We had the Aurora Theater shooting in Denver. At the time, was the largest mass shooting in America. Right? We've seen fires destroy parts of California. We've seen hurricanes destroy entire cities. We've seen tornadoes. Uh, I lived in Missouri when the Joplin tornado came through and destroyed part of a city. Lots of things happen that make you stop and you go, well, where was God then? Where, where is God in, in that? You know that, that kid I told you that I went fishing with? His name is Braden. Try ahead of time not to cry. No promises. That was the last time that I ever hung out with Braden. See, I, I had met him in youth group. Um, I was his youth leader, and this this kid was um, he was going to be a, a good leader. You could tell. And it wasn't because he loved Jesus. It wasn't because he loved the Bible. He wasn't like your prototypical youth group kid. It was because he was popular and he was friendly. And so he would bring his friends. And to be honest with you, I know some kids today that I know because of him. I met his football buddies. I met his baseball buddies. And he'd bring them around. And he really liked to fish. And so that was my connection. was like, we, let's go fishing. And we went once that one time. But over the years, we lost touch. I, I stopped serving at that church. He stopped going to that youth group. And not only did I lose touch, but I, I lost influence in this young man's life. And so I kind of watched from a distance on Facebook and through some of those friends that I had met as his life sort of spiraled downhill. And again, he was never that kid that just loved Jesus. I think he knew Jesus, but that wasn't a marker in his life. And so from the outside as a, as a pastor, I'm like, I, I wish I had a way to tell him what I see, but I had lost the, 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 the relationship, right? So I'm just seeing this happen. And then in July of 2017, after a party, he had taken too much of something, and he went home, and he went to bed, and he never woke up at 18 years old. Where was God in that? Where was, where was a good God when this 18-year-old man, just starting, doesn't get to start? Why didn't he stop that? Those are the sort of questions that we have to wrestle with 
when we're between the two trees, right? What about, what about when you, uh, you've probably all known somebody and there's probably people in the room that have lost a child in the womb or after? Where's God, right? Or, or maybe it was a sibling or a spouse that went too early or a parent that wasn't old yet. Where's God in that? Or, or the mass shootings or the hurricanes or rape or neglect or abuse or betrayal. When it's hard, sometimes it feels like that's when God's far. Why is that? That's what I want to tackle today, okay? Here's the problem. If you boil all of that down, when we experience or we witness pain or tragedy or suffering and we don't feel like it's fair, we begin to doubt God in one of two ways. We doubt his goodness or we doubt his ability, one of the two. And to be honest, that's actually the atheist's best argument against Christianity, okay? That how could an all-good God, who's also all-powerful, allow evil? If he's good, evil's a problem, and if he's able to deal with it, why doesn't he? That's their argument. But on a personal level, for those of us that believe, we still doubt his goodness, don't we? Sometimes we, we experience those things and we go, I, I have a feeling that you're able. Why didn't you? Or we think he's good and we're like, ah, I just don't think he can fix this. This problem just is still going on, right? Whatever it is. That's the situation we find ourselves in. And I don't have all the answers. That's why this is more of a heart to heart. I don't have them all. But I want to help you see some of the things that I see, some of the things that help me when these questions come up, okay? So again, depth, not breadth, right? We're gonna cover a story that we've covered here plenty of times. I've talked about it in the youth group. If you've been around church, you've heard this before. We're not gonna get to the part of the story that you think matters though, okay? So stay with me, stay tuned in. As we go to John chapter 11, would somebody bring me a tissue? I know that's, I should have been prepared. That's why. <laughs> okay, we're gonna go to John chapter 11, and we're gonna be in verse one, okay? Um, it says, now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Imagine that intimate moment that they had shared before, right? These were friends of Jesus. So the sisters sent word to Jesus and said, Lord, the one you love is sick. Think about that. Think about if somebody could tell Jesus that you have a problem and they don't even have to know your name. All they say is the one you love is sick. Jesus loved this guy, loved this family. And you know what? I think that this seemed like a really obvious thing. Thank you. (laughs) See, my wife is just like going nuts back there. (laughs) Thank you, everybody, uh, wife included. All right, so um, I think that this was obvious. 
I think it was an obvious reaction for Mary and Martha, right? Lazarus is sick, and they say, you know what? We've seen Jesus heal some people, right? Like, this guy, he does the best stuff. He's healing lepers. He's healing blind people like our brother's sick. Go get Jesus. That makes sense, doesn't it, that they would send to him? And I think that sometimes we're like that too, right? We see what God does around us in the lives of other people, and it creates a sense of expectation. And we say, this is the kind of thing God does. And we go to God with it. And you should. And you should. Well, what you're going to see is that expectation is kind of like the tee that sets up the ball. And sometimes it's still a miss, right? Most of you guys are familiar with this story. I'm not ruining the story, I hope. (laughs) All right, so... The closer to Jesus we are, the more that expectation grows, though, doesn't it? Have you ever felt like, man, if I was just closer to Jesus, then he would fill in the blank? If I just knew him better, if if I was a better Christian, if I just read my Bible, if I had kicked that habit years ago, then he would fill in the blank. And if there was anybody that was close to Jesus, it was his friends. Let's keep going. Verse 4. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. I love that. Because Jesus is never who I think he's going to be when I start reading, right? And you think of all of this, the the time that you're going to heal somebody, one of your best buddies is lying sick and he's not even worried about it, right? Jesus isn't worried about it. He says, this isn't, it's not like he's dying, If I could translate that into Jason version, right? Jesus said, it's not like he's dying. This one's for God's glory, right? And they all go, oh, cool. Has that ever happened to you, though? You go to God with something that you think is a big deal, and you feel like he's not taking it seriously? You feel like, this is a pretty big deal. Like, I don't, maybe you don't understand. And he goes, that's how you feel, that he answers. And then verse, verse five here. It says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Why would John put that in the middle of this story? Why would John? John's experienced all of this, right? He was there in the room when all of this was happening. Jesus gets the word and he says, it's not, it's not gonna end in death, you guys. And then John says, He loved these people. You know why he put that in there? He put that in there for you and for me because it doesn't feel like he loved those people. John actually had to make an edit in this story just sort of halfway through to say, don't lose track of what's happening here. Jesus loves this family. And that brings me to something, and this is actually a a youth thing. Um, It really should be part of um, Christianity 101, I think. Okay? And so I teach this to my youth group all the time. You guys get it today. Okay? It's called the truth train. And here's how the truth train works. We've got the first version of it up here on the screen. And the truth train is this. You are experiencing life just like a train is going down the tracks. And as you encounter different experiences, good or bad, one of two things is going to happen. If your feelings are driving the train then your version of the truth has to get in line behind that feeling. If the feelings are driving the train, 
The truth lines up behind the feelings. And I say truth with, with air quotes, right? But you're driving that train, or I'm sorry, you're, 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 you're experiencing life and feelings are driving that train and something bad happens. And you say, man, I don't feel like God loves me. And then you, another bump, I don't feel like God took care of that the way that he should have. And pretty soon, what you think is true about God has changed because of what you feel. Now, here's the other way the truth train works. You switch those two around. If truth is driving the train, then as you experience that bump, you say, God loves me, even though I don't feel it right now. Right? And then another bump, and the things don't go the way you want it to, and you go, yeah, but God, God knows exactly what's coming, and he wouldn't have let me get there without being by my side to help me. And the truth that you know when it's driving the train can change your feelings. How many of you guys have ever experienced that, that you can lead your own heart? Be careful not to let your heart lead you, right? That if you let truth filter your experiences, your feelings will line up. Okay? I think that John puts this thing in here about, about Jesus loved them. That's a truth train nugget right there. He said, We're, you're going to feel some things as we read this. Don't let those feelings determine the truth about Jesus. So let's go back to that verse. Okay? So he told him plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there, that you may believe. I'm sorry, you guys. I feel like I've skipped. I did. Notes. <laughs> Who needs them? <laughs> I need them. Don't, yeah, that'd be bad. All right, you guys. Um, John 4, or 11, 4. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Mary, or Martha, and her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. Remember the truth train thing. Don't let your feelings get in front of you here. There are times when God doesn't do what we want God to do. You need to hear that. You need to let that sink in. Don't let the feelings determine how that sinks in. It doesn't mean that he's a bad God. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, it's not on the screen. It says, uh, for now, we only see a reflection as in a mirror. Then, in the future, at that tree, we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully. There are some things we will not understand here between the trees, right? He's God, and I'm not. And again, I don't, I don't have great answers for this stuff, but when I have a struggle with that statement that he's God and I'm not, underneath it, I feel like he owes me something. And he doesn't. God doesn't owe me anything, does he? And in fact, he, he doesn't owe me anything, and yet he gave me everything at the cross already. All right, so we're going to skip a few verses. If you have your paper Bible, you should read those verses, but they really have nothing to do with what we're talking about. So down in verse 11. It says, after he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. 
And you can imagine his disciples are like, what? Like, that doesn't make any sense. A minute ago, you told us he was just fine, and now you, like, he's finally asleep. You're going to go wake him up? You're mean. That's literally, if, if I'm John or Peter, I'm in the back like, you need some sleep too. <laughs> You're getting weird, Jesus. And that's pretty much what they said. They, his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. Verse 14. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Wasn't it just a few minutes ago that he said, this isn't gonna end in death. There are times when I think, Jesus, you don't make a lot of sense, (laughs) right? We can all be honest about that. Verse 16, then Thomas, also known as Didymus or Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. You see, this whole group loved Lazarus to the point that the disciples were like, you're kidding me. Like two days ago, we heard he was sick and now he's dead. Something went horribly wrong here. Something didn't go the way it was supposed to. And so Thomas probably speaks for the rest of the group. Verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. So it took a while to get there. But you guys, this is probably only a two-day walk, which means that the two days that he spent waiting to leave, he already knew too. Been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. It was a a suburb, right? And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. They had a funeral. That's what we would all do, right? He died. They had a funeral. People came out from the big city, and they're all in Bethany at this funeral, which lasted for days in the Jewish culture, you guys. There was a lot of mourning. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. So now you've got two sisters. One of them goes out running. She hears that Jesus is coming. He's on the road. He's just outside of town, and she goes running out there. And I love Martha, right? She goes running out to Jesus because what else is she going to do, right? Finally, I sent for him. Now he's finally here, and she goes running out there. And this is what I want you guys to pay attention to is this conversation. Verse 21. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Up until this week, every time I've read that, it's this statement of, you should have been here, followed by a statement of faith. After reading it over and over and over this week, I don't think that's, this, that's the way this is set up. I think she says, you should have been here. And what makes it worse is that you get what you ask for, and you could have stopped this. Where were you? You can imagine Martha in this moment. Where were you, Jesus? I thought we were friends. My brother's dead. Don't you love us? 
You missed the funeral even. You should have been here. Martha experienced that same moment where we say about Braden, where were you that night, right? Why didn't you stop that? Or that time that, that your friend lost her baby and everybody was grieving and somebody said, where was God? That's Martha right here. That's one of Jesus' best friends in this moment. And I, to be honest with you, I think that Jesus probably allowed this to happen, knowing that it was going to encourage generation after generation of people that are between the trees. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Again with the weird Jesus, right? Like, um, what? Uh, four days, Jesus, we buried him. Four days ago. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And she says, I know that God can fix this, right? There's a, there's a, there's a hint of faith in this, right? Like, I, I know it will be okay someday. I know that God can fix this. And I like Jesus' answer. He says, I am the fix, Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And she said, I think God could fix this. And he says, I am the fix. I am am the solution. And then he says, I'm the life, right? Let's go all the way back to this tree. Everything before this tree was perfect, but the moment that we broke it, death. And death is what has reigned ever since. There is one thing I guarantee, and that is that 100% of people will die. It's a statistic that I'm good at. And Jesus says, yeah, but I'm the life. And, he, and then he goes on to say, in the midst of death, I'm the life. And this was a pivotal moment for Martha. She had the opportunity here to choose to trust her emotions or to trust the truth. And if she had chosen to trust her emotions in that moment, that she went running out to Jesus, pounding on his chest, where were you? If she'd have trusted that, she would have gotten bitter and she would have doubted his goodness. How many of us, don't raise your hand, how many of us have been there and we say, man, I've been bitter and I've doubted his goodness. Or we've seen family members that have walked away from Jesus because of something like this where they said, you had a chance to be good to me. Where were you? Bitter. This was a pivotal moment for Martha. And what Martha did was she leaned into the truth and not the way that she felt. And she said, yeah, I believe that. I do. I believe that you're the Messiah. I believe that you're the solution. I, um, I was a, a, a car salesman for three weeks. 
<laughs> if there's any car salesmen in here, God bless you. That industry chewed me up, all right? But in the three weeks that I was a car salesman, um, uh, we were training. And so the, the guys that are training are not making anybody any money, right? And so all the remedial tasks, the things that aren't important, they fall to the guys that are training. We had to, uh, a, a guy and I, another guy that was training with me, we had to leave the dealership and drive to Montrose to pick up another car. We needed to, to get more inventory. And so we're driving down there, and uh, at the time I was a volunteer youth pastor, and so uh, I kind of wanted, like, why? we're stuck in a car for an hour, right? And so I start talking about Jesus with this guy. I've spent a couple weeks with him. We'll call him Mark, mostly because I don't remember his name. <laughs> so Mark and I are driving down to Montrose, and I'm telling him about Jesus, and he's given me some of the best and worst atheist arguments I've ever heard because he's an atheist, doesn't believe in God. And man, we're wrestling. I had just recently gotten out of Bible college, so like I was eating this stuff up, right? Every answer, I'm like, oh, that was on page 72, right? <laughs> and so I remembered all of my answers, and I'm just, I'm spitting them back at him. And like, if we were in a debate, I won, okay? Not to be prideful, it's the way it went. Okay, we get close to Montrose. We're between Delta and Montrose. We're probably only 10, 15 minutes from the dealership. And the tone of our conversation changed. And kind of out of the middle of nowhere, I, I, I must have won over the, the, the arguments because he said, I used to live in California before I moved here. And my wife was raped and murdered. I can't believe in a God that would allow that. And for an hour, all I was doing was treading water. I was running on a treadmill. I wasn't getting anywhere because the argument wasn't about whether or not God existed. The argument was about whether or not God was good. And because he didn't feel like God was good, he refused to believe. That was Martha's moment. She chose the other direction. And now she runs back and she tells Mary, Jesus is here, right? And you can imagine, like, she's probably doing a little better at this point. She just had this really cool conversation where, where Jesus said, your brother's coming back. And so she runs back and she's like, Mary, Jesus is here. And the exact same conversation happens again because Mary goes running out there. Verse 32, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But instead of that same conversation, watch what happens here. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. He said, where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then possibly the most beautiful verse in the Bible is next. Jesus wept. Why? Why, why did Jesus cry in that moment? Why did he weep in that moment? I, I remember whenever I went to Braden's funeral. I was not that close to him anymore. Right? Like, I, I didn't have a, a, a connection to most of the people that he knew, but the people that I saw that I did know, when they were broken, it broke me again. And I think that Jesus experienced that 
right? He knows. He knew before they left the last town they were in that Lazarus was dead, right? He knew it was coming. You want to be honest. And yet when Mary is crying at his feet, that's when he weeps. And I think that when we were crying over Braden, I think Jesus was crying. And I think that when you're, when you're broken over the loss of a loved one, I think Jesus is weeping with you. And I think that when, when somebody goes into a theater with a gun in the dark and just shoots them all up, I think Jesus is crying. And I think that when a hurricane comes crashing into the, the side of Louisiana, I think Jesus experiences that brokenness too. Not because he has to, but because he chooses to. We may never get the answer that we want. Okay? And to be honest with you, if you know the rest of this story, they did. They did get the answer that they want. Right? Jesus calls him out of the grave. He comes back to life. Um, I'm not sure if that was a blessing or a curse because Lazarus may be one of the only people that died twice. I'm not sure how that works. Right? But for Mary and Martha's sake, they got what they wanted. But we may not. We may not always get what we want. But you know that we have a God that chooses to see us in our pain and feel it with us. He's not immune to that pain. He's not immune to what it feels like to lose a friend or to see a friend crying or upset. So why? Why would he put Mary and Martha through that? Why would he put himself through that, right? He could have prevented that, right? Why not just stop the suffering, end the evil, keep it from happening in the first place? Why? 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 Check out this verse in 2 Peter chapter 3. It's in verse 9. It says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The context of that conversation, you guys, is about the judgment at the end. That's about this tree and everything that leads up to this tree. Like, when is he going to fix it? And he says he's not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you and me. You see, part of our problem is when we want to talk about why doesn't God fix the evil in the world, it's the evil out there, right? It's the people that hurt me. It's the people that commit these mass murders. It's the natural evil that's the result of the fall and the hurricanes and all. It's everything out. We have a harder time looking at the evil within, don't we? but it's all a result of this tree. When we broke God's goodness, something broke in us too. Wouldn't you agree that if you just took a moment, inventoried your heart, there are times when we're evil, aren't we? Right? Even a, even a child, we talked about this in our office this week, it's kind of funny and kind of sad at the same time. You think children are innocent, and it's like, how could, you, how could a baby that got hurt Right? Down in Montrose just last week, a, a woman got arrested for, for hurting an 18-month-old and putting her in the hospital. And you go, where, how could that happen? 
right? It, children are so innocent until you see a child and another child hang out for five minutes, right? <laughs> We're evil people. We still reflect the goodness of God, kind of like a dirty mirror or a broken mirror. There's a reflection, but it's not right. God's answer to why he won't just squash all evil is because he loves you too much. Because if he just eliminated all evil, he'd have to eliminate me. He'd have to eliminate you, wouldn't he? Right? And it says that instead he's patient with you and me, not wanting anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. God's answer to the problem of evil isn't an explanation, it's the incarnation. And if you guys don't know what that is, it's a churchy word, when God became a man. God's answer for evil isn't to eliminate it, it's to pay for it. And so he pays for all of the pain, all of the anguish, all of the tragedy, and he pays for your sin and your evil too. And he did that on the cross. And so the most beautiful verse might be when Jesus wept because we identify with that, but the most important verses were what he said to Martha in verse 25 of John 11. Let's read it again. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? He says, I am the source of life. You want freedom from death? It's in me. And that is experienced both now and in the future, right? That there will be a time here at this tree, there will be a time in the future when we are truly experiencing life the way it was meant to be, when the creation that was good there gets fixed and recreated here. But it's for now too, right? That there can be life in the midst of pain and death, and it's found in Jesus. He said this too, and we're gonna wrap up here in just a minute, you guys, but he said this a few chapters forward in John 16, verse 33. I've told you these things, so that you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take courage. I've overcome the world. Jesus didn't promise you that you wouldn't have trouble. He promised you that you would. Because he knows you're between two trees. But notice what else he says in here. He said, I've told you these things so that you may have peace. Peace when you shouldn't have peace, right? And then he says, take courage. I've overcome the world. The depth of pain and suffering and evil in our world, no matter how bad it gets, it puts the depth of God's love on display because he paid for every ounce of it at the cross. And God's love is spelled J-E-S-U-S. When tragedy and suffering strike, and you choose to run into his arms, you're gonna find the peace to deal with the present, the courage to deal with the future, and the promise of eternal life. There's a promise that there's gonna be a day when it's not like this. So I'm gonna end 
with um, a couple questions, and, and I want to give credit where credit's due. Um, my wife's been reading a book by Lisa Turkhurst. If you guys know her, um, she wrote a book called Uninvited, and in there, there are these three very pointed questions that are really good for us to wrestle with. As you go home, and the next time you're struggling with this, or if you want to get the truth train figured out now so that when you hit a bump, you've got it figured out, these are the three questions I want you to wrestle with. Is God good? Is he good? Right? I would say that because of this tree and everything before it, there's no other option to but think God is good. Look around, right? Look at the heavens. Look at the monument. Look at creation and tell me that we don't have a good God, right? We have a good God. But you have to believe that too. Is God good? Is God good to me? That one isn't in the Bible. There's some promises in there that are true about his relationship with you. But I tell you what, when pain and suffering and, and tragedy come into my life and I say, is God good to me? And then I look at my children and my wife and the beautiful place that I get to live and the beautiful time in history that I get to live, I have no option but to say, yeah, God's good to me too. Is he good? Is he good to me? Then do I trust him to be him? Do I trust God to be God? and to get me to that tree someday, and to give me life in the midst of death now. Let me pray over you guys, and then we'll go. Jesus, we thank you for this, this intimate and, and touching story in Scripture, because it, it strikes at the heart of some of the things that we deal with. And so I pray over all of us that you would, that you would remind us often that you're good, and that you're good to us. And then we want to commit to let you be God. I pray for healing for those people that have experienced a pain or a tragedy. I pray uh, repentance, Lord, that we're, we're sorry for the times that we've let that make us bitter and we've doubted you. And I pray for everybody that we know that's far from you because of something like this, that you would draw them back thank you for 2 Peter 3.9, right? That you're patient. You want everybody to be in repentance. Thank you for your patience. And the next time that we see pain or suffering around us, help us to see the depth of your love, the things you were willing to pay for. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.